0: Good morning. My name is Tom Hart, and I am the RUF campus minister at Furman University, big rival of Wofford College, but we got some fans. We got some paladins in the house. And uh, this morning, I'm going to read to you in just a moment from the book of Acts chapter 15, or excuse me, 16, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. I just love it. And uh, this week, when Justin was getting the bulletin ready, he called me and he said, hey, Tom, did you, um, did you give me the right verses for what you're going to preach on? And I said, yeah, it, it's kind of confusing. I'm just going to kind of pick up in the middle of a story, and I get that. Uh, but I promised him I would explain. And so here's the explanation. Okay, we are about to hear a portion of Scripture, uh, a slice out of the life of the Apostle Paul. And if you've been around church very much, you've probably heard of him. And we tend to think of the Apostle Paul as this great hero of the faith who just went all over the world, and he preached these awesome sermons. And everywhere he went, people believed in Jesus, and he planted these churches that grew and thrived. And some of that is true, but if you really pay attention to the life of this man, the Apostle Paul, in the New Testament. Most of the time, when he went around preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus, he was greeted with mockery, physical abuse, attempted murder, and imprisonment. And... Uh, You know, most people he preached to did not believe. We forget that. And what we're going to get in this passage that you're about to hear is one of those times when the Apostle Paul showed up in a town, in the town of Philippi, uh, which is in modern-day Greece. And uh, he didn't know anybody, and he started to preach. And some people believed, but most people hated this gospel that he was preaching and responded by abusing him and throwing him in jail. And uh, we're going to hear about what happened there. So, I'm going to read to you Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 22. And again, this comes after Paul had been preaching, and people are responding to it. This is God's Word. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he, the jailer, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. But then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do give you thanks for your word. We thank you that um, it is brutally honest about the world and how the world works. We thank you even more that uh, it gives us good news. News that when we hear it properly, the only way to respond is with great rejoicing. I pray that that's what it would produce today. As we think about Paul and his friend Silas, and their encounter with this man 2,000 years ago, this jailer, um, that you would open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear the good news about Jesus. And Lord, that our hearts would rejoice. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I got thrown in jail in downtown New Orleans... In the summer of 2005, it was the scariest day of my life. I was down in South Mississippi right on the border with Louisiana, but I was over in New Orleans for a day and uh, I got arrested and taken to the, the Orleans Parish Prison System Jail across the street from the Superdome. My cell phone taken away, my clothes that I was wearing taken away, and in their place an orange jumpsuit handed to me. And I was locked into a big cell, maybe about as big as this room, with over a hundred men also wearing orange jumpsuits, so they were dressed like me, but they didn't look like me because they all were tatted up and had been hit in the gym, and I was a puny junior in college, and I was so scared. I spent all day in jail wondering what was going to happen to me. See, I was arrested. I know you're you're wondering. I do that. It's a rhetorical device. I was arrested for a traffic ticket uh, in New Orleans, which I've heard since that the cops were arresting everyone for anything because the federal government, FEMA, was paying them per person that they booked into their jail. So they were arresting everybody. But I didn't know that. They pulled me over. They asked me to step out of the vehicle. as two cops. They were big and scary. Asked me to step out of the vehicle and put my hands on the hood, which I complied. They patted me down, pulled my hands behind my back, put handcuffs on me, shoved me in the back of a police car, and took me to jail. I was wondering all the while, what did my dad do? Because I was driving a car registered in his name. Like, did he kill someone is he in trouble with the IRS? Do they think I'm somebody I'm not? I don't know. And I was t- And they never told me. And they took me to the downtown lockup. They took my clothes. They put me in an orange jumpsuit. They put me in a big cell. And they didn't t- I didn't know how long I would be there. I asked some other guys how long they'd been there. Some had been there several days or a week. I didn't know if I would be there. Allowed- I didn't know how to get out. The not knowing was the worst part. I ultimately did get out after about nine hours. But the sitting in a jail cell with all of my control taken away and no sense that I could do anything to help myself, completely at the mercy of the prison guards, it's a terrifying feeling. I always think of that when I read passages like this. Because I think it's really easy for us when we read passages in the Bible about Bible guys doing Bible things like being thrown in prison to be like, yeah, that's, that's what happens to Bible guys. It's, kind of, it's easy for us to kind of see like Paul and Silas Or Peter and his buddies, when they got arrested in Jerusalem, is kind of like cartoon characters. Like, yeah, I mean, they went to jail, but they were going to get out. We know how the story's going to end. It's going to be fine. But when you experience something like that, it doesn't feel like a, a cartoon story. It doesn't feel like something that you read about in the Jesus Storybook Bible. It feels very real. And as we think about these real-life people, I really want us to work to do that. Think about Paul and Silas as real-life people, people who are not so different from you and from me. And I want us to think about what they went through and how they handled themselves and what that tells us about life and about life with Jesus. And, of course, I also want us to focus on this other guy, this just jailer who they encountered... In the prison, one of my favorite guys that I encountered in in my experience was the guy who took my mugshot. He was this huge, towering man. And, I mean, I guess he was looking at me as a 21-year-old college guy. They probably assumed that I was a frat boy down there partying in New Orleans, which I was not. I was working with a church doing Hurricane Katrina relief, but anyway. Before he took my mugshot, he had the little Polaroid camera And he kind of laughed, and he said, you're going to learn a hard lesson today, boy. And he started to take my picture, and all I could do was just eek out a grin, because I didn't want him to see how scared I was. I've looked on the internet. I've never been able to find that mugshot. I would pay so much money to see it, but... I think about that guy, too, when I read these stories, because the, the, the jailer who Paul and Silas encountered, was a, he's not a cartoon character. He was a real person. So let's think through what these real people in this real life situation uh, can tell us about Jesus. And as we think through that, here are our three points. All right, we got three points. We've got two cultures. We're going to explore the two cultures that we see in play. And then at the end, we're going to see that within these two cultures, at the end of the story, there's one family. All right, so two cultures. The first one I want us to see, the first of the two cultures, is the culture that Paul and Silas exemplify. And that culture is what I want us to call a gospel culture. See, Paul and Silas were uh, these two men who had encountered Jesus. Paul, in a really fantastic way, encountered, resurrected Jesus on the road. Jesus appeared to him and called him to be an apostle. And Silas heard, the, likewise, in a, in a maybe not a spectacular, but no less miraculous way, heard about this Jesus, this king who had died and raised again, And he believed in him. Paul and Silas had come to believe that Jesus, this Jewish man who lived as a poor person, had taken on their sins in their place, as we have sung about and talked about all morning. He had died for them and then been resurrected to bring them new life and it transformed their lives. This good news about Jesus Changed everything about them. They had experienced Jesus as a Savior, so they had hope and they had joy. And they experienced Jesus as their Lord, their Savior and their Lord. And Jesus sent Paul and Silas on this mission to take the gospel out all over the world. They were thousands of miles from home in a place that they didn't know, where they didn't know anyone. And they were just looking for people down by the river, and in the synagogue to tell about this Jesus who meant everything to them. Jesus gave Paul and Silas their purpose, their mission. He was the rock around which their lives orbited. They were soaking in gospel culture. And look how this affected their lives. Started in verse 22, because that's where the beating happens. It says the crowd, a bunch of people, joined in attacking them. And the magistrates, so the people with authority, tore the garments off of them, gave orders to beat them with rods. So Paul and Silas... Are beaten to a bloody pulp. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So the jailer, having received this order, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet with stocks. Now I had to Google that. What does that mean, stocks? It served two purposes in the, in the prison. For one, it made a prisoner more secure. But it doubled, its second purpose was to be a torture device. The jailer would spread your legs out if you're a prisoner, basically until you're doing a split, and lock one ankle in one side and another ankle in the other side. And if you're left there for a long time, your body starts to cramp and seize up and it hurts. That's the purpose of the stocks. And as they were being fastened into this torture device, as they're left in the inner cell of this prison, surely without having been read their Miranda rights or told how to contact an attorney or given any indication of how long they would be there or what would happen to them or whether they would be killed Beaten more, or at any moment set free, with no knowledge, that not knowing, when they were being squeezed by their circumstances. Look at how they responded. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. These men who were soaking in the knowledge of Jesus, who were living their lives orbiting around Him, who were soaking in this gospel all the time, when they got squeezed by life, what came out of them? It was joy, it was hope, it was hymns, it was prayers. amazing I told my kids I was going to do a magic trick check this out this is a sponge it's been soaking for at least 20 minutes in a bowl of water when you take the sponge out of the water and you pick it up and you squeeze it what comes out My kids thought it was going to be something else. It's water. When you squeeze a sponge that's been soaking in water, water runs out. That's that's what it's saturated with. We are very much like that. Whatever we're soaking in, whatever we are listening to, whatever we're watching, whatever we're giving our attention to and our heart to, soaks into us, and when life squeezes us, that is what is going to come out. It's amazing to me how these men who are in in this circumstance that I have been in, when they got squeezed, when they were beaten, when they were tortured, when they sat on the not knowing, worship came out. That's quite a contrast to what came out, to what we see uh, the jailer was soaking in. We're going to see this too. Very different stuff he was soaking in. The jailer was soaking in something that we're going to call performance culture. This is our second point, second culture, performance culture. See, the jailer lived in this town of Philippi, which you probably don't know. I don't know, maybe you know. I didn't know until I started studying the passage, was uh, a major center for the Roman military. It was, it was Roman territory at the time, and lots of soldiers were stationed there, and uh, most of the, a lot of the people who lived in the town uh, were retired Roman soldiers, and for someone who was particularly uh, uh, in the, the jail industry, the prison industry, he was almost certainly ex-military, ex-Roman military. And what it means to be a Roman military guy, what it means to live in that society is that you are soaking in this culture that tells you that if you win, if you succeed, then there is honor and glory for you. Like the gladiators, right? You win... People cheer for you. You're you're given a great retirement if you if you're a, a soldier and you have success and you uh, you you carry out your campaigns with valor. Then you are honored and revered and you have a high uh, position in society. But if you fail, you die. Failure, losing, it was so shameful that. Uh, Soldiers would, would rather kill themselves than face the consequences of losing. It was a hyper uh, hyper-performance culture. Look at how this culture affected the jailer. Look at how it led him to live. First thing I want us to notice is how he handled these two men, Paul and Silas, when they came into his care. So Paul and Silas had already been arrested, stripped, beaten. They were beaten to the point where they were bleeding. We know that because later on he has to wash them. Uh, And and you you can imagine these these men being brought, looking in a pretty pitiful position to the jailer. And the jailer was given an order, you see, in verse 23, to keep them safely. So these weren't regular prisoners. They were prisoners who needed to be kept extra safe. And so the jailer took these men with no regard for them, no mercy whatsoever, no thought about the fact that they're wounded or injured or need care, and he takes them to the inner prison, and he straps them into a torture device, and then he goes home, and he goes to bed. He's been desensitized to human beings. He doesn't care about them. What does he care about? He cares about following his orders. As a former Roman soldier, most likely that makes sense. The only thing that matters is getting the job done. When performance Culture is what we're soaking in. When the only thing that matters to us is getting the job done, we just don't care who we have to run over to get the job done. I saw an example of this uh, in the church. Unfortunately, this performance culture can exist even in the church. Uh, I, I saw it, in, uh, or, or heard it, I guess, recently in a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Some of y'all might have heard that podcast. It's a fascinating and tragic podcast. It tells a story of a church that was headed by a, a narcissist. And the, the, the guy's name is Mark Driscoll. He's still out there. And uh, he's, on the, he's recorded in the, in the podcast saying that at Mars Hill Church, You need to either get on the bus or get out of the way of the bus. Or we're going to run you over. Because the bus bus of Mars Hill Church, if you try to get in our way, we're going to run you over. And there's already a pile of bodies behind the bus of Mars Hill Church. And by God's grace, by the time we're done, there's going to be a mountain of bodies. Driscoll's ambition to grow a megachurch made him callous towards who he had to destroy to get what he wanted. In a performance culture where results matter most, we don't care who we have to destroy to get the job done. Second thing I want us to see in this jailer's life is he was not only willing to destroy the people around him, he was willing to destroy himself, which is a sad reality here. It, when the earthquake hit, this miraculous earthquake hit, and it broke the jail, and he knew somehow that the, the prisoners were enabled to escape, the doors where he saw the doors were off or whatever. And he realizes that his this this performance world he's been living in, this life he's been leading, where he's always been uh, doing Uh, uh, living to succeed, it's, it's all coming apart. He's failed. The prisoners who were put in his charge are escaped. He draws his sword, it says, in verse 27, to kill himself. He was so undone by failure and overwhelmed by shame that his life had no value in his own eyes. He was willing to destroy himself. Now, to ask you to consider this morning: What are you soaking in? What are you soaking in? What is the culture that you're swimming in? What are you soaking up? What are you watching? What are you, who are you listening to? You know, I'm not a, a, an advocate or a practitioner of. Only Christian radio all the time. But are the the voices who we let into our heads and into our hearts, are they telling us the truth about the world and who God is? Or are they telling us messages about how anxious we need to be and how much we need to improve ourselves in order to matter? Are we soaking in a performance culture or are we soaking in the good news of Jesus who has grace for broken people like us? The jailer encountered that good news. This is where we see the one family. It's amazing, right? Earthquake, miracle, doors fall off the jail, jailer runs in. He thinks that that everybody's escaped. He's sitting there ready to commit suicide when he hears this voice from within, Paul crying out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer who has been wrung dry, he's been squeezed out, his circumstances overwhelmed him. He's sitting there empty. He hears this, this cry. He runs in, he sees Paul and Silas, these men who he hooked to a torture device a couple hours ago. They're moving towards him. He, He probably heard them singing and listened to their prayers. And he, in his emptiness, he sees something in them that he wants, the salvation that they have, that they were singing about, that they have been praying for. He wants it and he says, what must I do to be saved? And they tell him, he yeah, has the question. All Christians want to hear, right? They got it. And they answered it. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. And this hardened man, this man who had no regard for human life at all, just melts. And he believes. And it changes everything. Did you catch how drastic that change that occurred to him was? Look at how it changes the way he relates to Paul and Silas. The beginning of the passage, he's given these two men, bleeding, wounded, and he locks them into a torture device without any feelings at all, and he goes home and goes to sleep. But here at the end of the passage, after he believes It says in verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. This merciless man with a sponge in his hand caring for the wounds of the men he had been torturing. The enemies, the jailer and the prisoners had become family. He washed their wounds and they washed him in the waters of baptism. These men who had nothing in common, no reason to be in fellowship, were brought together by this good news, by this believing in Jesus that united them into a family. Ken Parker was uh, a man who was a grand dragon in the KKK. His robe was not white, but it was green because he had risen uh, in the ranks. But he wasn't satisfied. He felt this nagging sense that the KKK was just not right for him because it wasn't hateful enough. And so he left the KKK to become a neo-Nazi. And so then he got SS lightning bolt tattoos to go beside his... Confederate flag, white pride, tattoos. And he joined with a group of neo-Nazis to attend the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally, which Ken Parker himself testifies was ostensibly about preserving American history and patriotism, but he went there with the express desire with his friends to start a race war. He was so full of hate. He wanted a race war, and Not long after he had attended that rally where a counter-protester was killed by someone like Ken Parker, he was back home in Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, he was coming home from being out with his girlfriend, and he walked into his apartment complex, and there was a party going on in the courtyard of his apartment complex, and some folks were outside barbecuing, And for whatever reason, he kind of slowed down and was looking at what they were doing. And the the people there waved him over. And he came over, and they gave him some chicken. And, uh, you know, he was hungry, so he started eating. He started talking to some people. And uh, what Ken didn't know was that the barbecue was for a church. It was a church barbecue at the apartment complex. And the man who was offering him chicken, William McKinnon III, was the pastor of the church. It was a black church almost entirely African-American. But the conversation and the chicken led to hours of talking. Ken and William sat outside the apartment complex talking about life, getting to know one another. And they really hit it off, and that led to a relationship. They lived in the same, same complex, and they would see each other and talk often. And William invited Ken to come To church with him, and Ken, still tatted up with Confederate flags and SS lightning bolts, went to church. And he heard the gospel. And on Easter Sunday of 2018, he stood up before the congregation. And he confessed i have been so full of hate and i hated people like you and i wanted to see war between people like me and people like you because i was racist and i was proud but i've heard the good news about jesus and i don't want to be who i was I want to be like who you are. And he gave his life to the Lord Jesus. And after the service, the whole congregation came forward. And they wrapped their arms around this skin-headed, hateful, tattoo-wearing, former SS neo-Nazi and they embraced him with the love of Jesus. This is what happens. This is what happens when enemies come into contact with the gospel and they believe it. When we believe into Jesus, we are united into one family. And it is a family of joy and life. Just the last thing I want you to see. I love how the passage ends. The the jailer's relationship to Paul and Silas has been completely changed. They have entered into fellowship with one another. And look at verse 34, the last verse we read. Then he, the jailer, brought them up into his house and set food before them. The Bible always goes to a meal. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Y'all, this is crazy. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. This hard, merciless jailer has woken up his family and his servants. And they were probably terrified because they didn't know what to expect from him. And he says, I believed in Jesus. You got to hear these people. And he's filled with joy. And he tells them to go get some food out and set it on the table because we have to celebrate. And they rejoice at Two o'clock in the morning with these new people that they've never met before. And they eat a fellowship meal together. And they worship the resurrected King Jesus. We're about to come to the table here. And I would encourage you, for one, if you have never experienced this gospel, maybe you're not as outwardly sinful as Ken Parker, but maybe you're like him and you are separated from Jesus, and you, you've never known the joy of this gospel, and there's anger or fear or pride in your heart that you have not yet let go of. Let me invite you. The family of God is a messy, inefficient, hypocritical at times, family but we want you to join us and to experience the love and joy that we have in Jesus. And that invitation is open. Please come to Him. If you are a Christian and you're about to eat this family meal, I would encourage you to remember that this is not just some formality or ritual that we do on Sunday mornings here because we live in the South. What we're doing is we're celebrating this reality that Jesus died for us. And that He is the one who has brought us together and made us a family. And God is our Father. And we are brothers and sisters united in Christ, our elder brother. And what we're about to experience is miraculous. It took the death and resurrection of the Son of God to make this family a reality. So let's do what the Philippian jailer did and surely what Ken Parker and that that Baptist church did after they baptized him in the Atlantic Ocean, which is to eat this fellowship meal together, rejoicing over our Savior. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you that you save sinners like us, and you do it joyfully. I pray that you would help us to see you, to see how you turn uh, sinful and broken and wretched people into brothers and sisters. And uh, I pray that we would uh, continue to worship you and receive the meal that awaits us with hope and with joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.